And good morning to our online uh, class as well. We're glad that you're joining us today. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that you will send your angels and your spirit to join us today, that our minds will be enlightened, we'll draw closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And I just want to tell you how, how glad I am to be back. Yeah, I missed you guys. And it's uh, fun to be back here with all of you again this weekend. We are doing lesson number six in our uh, quarterly evangelism and witnessing. And the lesson title this week is personal evangelism and witnessing. If someone would read for us the memory text, which is out of Isaiah 43.10, please. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. What do you think this means? Is it speaking only of the Jewish nation? Or would this include all those who accept Jesus as their Savior? All who accept Jesus as their Savior. Okay, Margaret says all. And then... What does it mean we are his witnesses? About what? To whom? For what purpose? Romans chapter 3 verse 4 says, and this is a good news translation, God must be true even though every human being is a liar. As the scripture says, you must be shown right when you speak and you must win your case when you are being tried. Is God being tried and does he need witnesses? At his trial. And, and as I was thinking and contemplating this, this text, you are my witnesses. Hmm. It, may, it reminded me of Revelation chapter 14. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. The hour when he must win his case when he is being tried. Is that what it's speaking of, or is it speaking of a time when he's going to sit and make judgments about us? Doesn't that Revelation 14 text go on to say, fear God and glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. What's, what's the next phrase? What's it, what's it say? Worship him, him who? Notice what it's pointing us to. In this time of God being judged, when we're calling for witnesses, it's pointing us back to the right knowledge of God as creator. And if you think that through, and hopefully your, your mind is popping like mine was popping, and, and you jumped onto Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul says that, in, that God's uh, eternal power and divine nature is seen in what he has made, so that men are without excuse. Are you seeing a connection? Well, we're to witness about God. Part of that is to draw attention back to the Creator God. Paul says in, in creation we can see God's true nature. Is, is there something, is there a connection here? How will it help to, to, to pull people's mind back to nature and the creator of nature? What would we see if we did that? Would we see that God is simply powerful? God has power. He creates. So we pull the mind back to a powerful being. Or do we see something else when we look into nature? Because Paul said in, in Romans 1, his eternal power is seen. So we do see power. But we also see his divine nature. What's his divine nature? Ah, so if we pull people back to nature at the time God is being tried, is this, a, is this God calling us to say, hey, understand God's design for life, the law of love and action, the natural principles upon which he constructed life to operate? Are we called at this time in history to reveal the reality of God's kingdom as seen both in our lives being transformed, but also in nature. Well, how will this help? Why would revealing God's law of nature be needed at this time in Earth's history? This time in Earth's history, Revelation chapter 14, end of time. Well, there are two grand theories that seem to have enveloped the world and hold the minds of men in bondage right now. Two grand theories that men seem to be bound by, one or the other. And what are those two grand theories? Evolution is one, penal substitution is the other. Penal substitution, God is a being who must kill, punish, torture, need to be appeased, propitiated. Uh, this Dark Ages view of God resulted in a reaction to it, and that reaction resulted in an evolutionary theory. You know, there is no God. God if there's a God, I couldn't believe in a God like that. There must be another explanation for things. And so these two grand theories, notice how drawing back the truth about God in nature, his law of love, his natural law, destroys both of these theories. 
what we've been talking about in here for the last six, eight months, we, we've done it many times and showed how the natural law of God, seen in God's creation, really exposes the fallacy of the, of the imposed law concept. But, but it also, when we go back to nature and see this natural law, it exposes the fallacy of an evolutionary theory too, doesn't it? Yeah. So at this time in Earth's history, these two distortions are fighting back and forth, actually. It's, it's people, if you notice the, the, the dialogue that goes throughout society, it's evolutionists are arguing against penal substitutionary punitive God constructs, and people who hold that construct are arguing against evolution. And they're both arguing back and forth, seeking for converts, and when they convert, guess what? They still darken the mind about God. Still darkening the mind about God. His character of love. So we are to give glory to God by revealing his character of love in our lives and teach people how God built his universe to run in harmony with his own character of love, thus turning minds back to the creator God. So think through some of the allegations that were made against God. Why is he on trial? What are some of the allegations made? Arbitrary. Arbitrary. What does arbitrary mean? What does that actually mean? Does things because he can. Does things because he can. No actual reason. So God is powerful. Powerful people can use their power that their whim to do things just because they want to. God is arbitrary. One of the allegations. What would the law of God, the law of love, the principles that life is built upon in nature say about this idea of arbitrariness? Oh, he says the law of consequences would be seen. That it's not arbitrary. God gives us instructions for our good, not out of an arbitrary whim. So it exposes that lie. Other, other, other allegations against God. Well, not only is God arbitrary, but that he, alleged to be arbitrary. That's one of the allegations that he's not only arbitrary, but he uses that power to benefit himself. Ah, so he's selfish. Yeah. Yes, that's another allegation. Do we see that answered in nature? Actually, well, the nature that God designed. Yes. See, and one of the things we're going to look at in a moment is, in fact, nature is currently struggling with two antagonistic principles. So nature is not a clear-cut a revelation of God's character anymore because there's another principle in nature as well. But as God originally built, the, built this planet, would it have revealed selfishness or selflessness? No. Everything lived in order to give. Everything gives in order to live. A natural free giving. The, the, the example I think still best works is the example of respiration. I mean, we, we freely give our, our carbon dioxide to plants. They give back oxygen to us. It's so easy. We don't have to work at it. It's not hard. And that's how the entire planet was built to run. That's how easy it was in the beginning to, to live to love. Yes? It, it's interesting that the, uh, the laws that govern nature support this idea, but yet the life seems, the, the animals themselves almost seem to be at war with the laws because, you know, they, you, you get what I'm saying there? Why is that the case? Because sin has infected nature. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, um, what was this planet originally constructed to reveal? God's character. And 1 Corinthians 4 says we are a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. This, this planet was a little microcosm of the universe. And who represented God in this microcosm? Adam. Who represented the Godhead? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, mankind. So if mankind is representing the Godhead, then what do the rest of the animals on earth represent? Other beings in, in, in nature. Which, is, which gap do you think is bigger? The gap between intelligence of a dolphin and man, or the gap between man and God? Man and God. Okay, so don't get put off by this idea that, hey, you know what, that's demeaning to all the intelligences to have them represented as animals. I don't think that's demeaning at all. Still, the gap is much closer than our gap to God. Yes? The seed goes into the ground, and unless it dies, there is no new life, there's no new crop. And meaning what? What's the lesson? That means self-denial and giving up of life in order to sustain life. The willingness. And, and that's the, and that, again, there's one of those natural laws at work on earth that life sustains itself by. If the seed was retaining itself and holding on selfishly to its own, there, then life would come to extinction very quickly, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, 
So this planet was designed, built to reveal God's nature, God's, God's nature throughout the principles everything operated upon. But what, what did man choose to do? Stay loyal, faithful, continue to represent that, or choose another principle? Deny God and follow Satan. And what happened to the characters of mankind? What happened to our character? Naturally now. Selfishness. And Paul says all nature groans under the weight of sin, the survival of the fittest principle. Um, so what did Christ come to do? What was his purpose? To show us what God is really like. Okay, so he came to reveal the truth about God, to destroy the lies of Satan, which is Satan's power, by the way. Disarming Satan. You know, the text about he disarmed him. Okay, Disarming Satan by revealing the truth and taking away his power. Destroying death. First Timothy, he, he, by his death, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light, and to heal mankind, to restore mankind. Maintaining freedom of choice. All under the umbrella of freedom of choice, absolutely right. So if Christ did all this, if Christ revealed all these things about God, if he revealed the truth, if he made this accomplishment, if his life answers the questions, then what are we to witness about? If Christ was the witness about God, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, if Christ has already revealed all these things, then what are we called to witness about? No, we're called to be his witnesses. What are we witnessing about? How he can transform and heal. Oh, say that louder back there. How he can transform and heal the sinful condition. Okay, so we there's a couple of elements here. One, she's mentioning right now, when we look at the life of Christ, do we get to see a sinner healed and restored to righteousness? No. 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 Do we learn something different about God, his abilities, his power to restore, his method of restoration, when we look at a sinner restored than when we look at Christ? Okay, so we get to witness something that Christ, and Christ said, you know, greater things than I you're going to do. And I'm going to suggest this is part of the greater things, that we get to have be participants in a greater revelation of God's restorative power. How his, his methods heal and transform. Um, and then think if a doctor claims to have a cure for cancer, what would the doctor need in order for people to believe those claims? Something. Some good documentation? Just bring in a whole stack of paper? Would, would he need that? Cancer. So he brings in a line of people and stands them up and says, hey, these are all cancer-free. Come, come examine them. Well, that's convinced you he has to get a cure for cancer. You have to see him sick first. Okay. See, does it say, this is the difference between, again, Christ and us. Does it, is it a different lesson to have a person who's never had cancer, and you examine them and they still don't have cancer, than a person who's riddled with cancer and now is cancer-free? Those are two different lessons, aren't they? Christ was never riddled with sin. His character was never marred by sin. He was never warped by sin. And so we look at him and see perfection at, all the way through. That's different than somebody who has been warped by sin being healed and restored to perfection, isn't it? Those are two different things. And so the, the, the patient who, who is healed of cancer, do they then become a powerful witness to the doctor and the doctor's remedy? Do they get to take credit? No. Look what I did. <laughs> healed myself. No, we don't get to take any credit. We get no credit. But we do become witnesses. So part of our witness is to witness what God has done in us and for us, that his, that his power. And that would require, though, us to live how? In harmony with the law. There you go. To live in harmony with the way he designed things. Now, our lives also get to show how gracious he is. Was there ever a reason for the Father, the Heavenly Father, to be disappointed with Jesus? No. There was never a reason for the Heavenly Father to go, oh man, I'm really... In fact, what did the Father say? This is my beloved Son in whom... Well, well pleased, okay? What about us? Has there ever been a reason for Him to be disappointed with us? Yeah. Pardon? But He still loves us. No, I'm not talking about His love, but have we ever let Him down? 
Yes. That's what I mean, that he could be disappointed. Um, does, does, does his treatment, does his treatment of us, in other words, how he treats us, his attitude toward us, despite our failings, our sickness, our twisted hearts, our shortcomings, do, does the way he treats us, in spite of all that, reveal something about the Father that was not seen in how he treated Christ? Yes. Because Christ never was in that position, right, of letting him down. You see my point? So we get to reveal something more about the Father in his graciousness toward us. Now, let, I want you to consider some of the witnesses Christ has, uh, the Father and the Christ have had through, through the centuries, through the millennia. And I want you to tell me what these witnesses have said and what do we learn about God through them. Let's start with Adam and Eve. What do we learn about God through Adam and Eve? Perfection. Perfection, number one. He created perfectly, didn't he? What else do we learn? There was an allegation about selfishness earlier. What do we learn in Adam and Eve? Did God selfishly hoard creative power or did he share creative power? Share. Did he hold control or did he give dominion? Gave dominion. Okay, so we see God giving and the way he created the world perfectly and he provided everything for their health and welfare. We learn a lot about God's character in the witness of Adam. Yes? We also see he's not angry when they fail. He's not, he was not mad at them. Excellent. When they fell, what do we learn about God? How did he approach them? How dare you, impudent rascals? No. No, he didn't approach like many, many of us approach, do we? Yes. It also shows that it takes maturity of character that is not created. Oh, yes, excellent. That God could create perfect sinless beings, but character itself had to be developed by the exercise of human choice. And they chose badly and didn't develop good character. They developed warped character. Yeah, excellent. What about Noah? What do we learn about, about God in the life of Noah and his experiences? And the world at that time. What do we learn? God is patient. What was his heart's desire for the world? To save it. That God was, was heartbroken and sad and didn't want the world to be lost. And he provided an opportunity for salvation. Who all would freely choose, they were free. There was no, there was no like, uh, hey, do you have your, um, your green card to get on the, uh, the ark here? You got your, you got your boarding pass. Uh, there was no boarding pass. There was no green card. There was no, you know, uh, driver's license test. There was no, not, I mean, you know, there was no TSA security screening getting on the ark. None of that. It's like, all you had to do was get on. It's all open. The only reason you were kept off was by your own choice. What does that say about God? Yeah. I, saw, I think it also says something about his foreknowledge. I was just going to say that. Yes. How, why did he only build one ark? Because it was a big scam and a big sham, and he was preaching for 120 years to get on the ark, but really, really, he never planned to take anybody but Noah and his family. Was that, was that what happened? Or God knew that none of them would choose it. So there's no need to be, build a fleet because... He knew they wouldn't choose. I think it reveals God's knowledge. But it also reveals God's graciousness because even though he knows, he doesn't stop the invitation. He doesn't say, well, you're not going to come anyway, so why invite you? Sometimes that's how we think. Well, I know they're not going to come. I'm not going to waste a stamp. Right? He gave them 120 years. He gave them 120 years of stamps. Yeah. <laughs> what about Abraham? What, about a- what, what do we learn about God through Abraham? Let's start with Abraham's idols. Did Abraham have idols? How did God treat him? What do we learn about God and Abraham? Abraham's, did Abraham lie? How did God treat him? What about Abraham's arguing with God over Sodom? I mean, think it through. God has come down. Uh, Abraham, that city is wicked. I'm going to have to destroy it because it's just so horrible and awful. It's beyond, it's beyond relief. It's like a cancer, and I, I have to excise it. It's gangrenous, and I've got to say, you know, I've got to, got to, got to cut out the gangrene. Um, you know, it's a, it's a therapeutic, in, in a surgical uh, procedure here. You've got to do it. Abraham goes, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Praise God. Here's some matches. Yeah, here's some matches. Can I help? It shows to me that God, before he brings any major destruction or bad thing, he always sends a warning. So God sends a warning, but more than that, Abraham argued with him. No, 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 no. In fact, Abraham challenged his character. Surely the Lord of all the earth must do what's right. 
And God knew what the outcome of that was going to be too, but he still allowed Abraham to argue with him. Yes, God already knew. Yes, exactly right. And what's it reveal? It reveals something going on with Abraham, doesn't it? That Abraham's been growing and knowing God and caring for his reputation and not wanting God to be misrepresented. Yes. What about um, Abraham and his multiple wives? What do we learn about God in that? And he had more than, or if you count concubines as wives. What do we learn? God says, hey, I've made, I designed one man, one woman. That's it. You, you've committed adultery. You broke, the, you broke the mold. I can't use you anymore. You're out of here. You're off the reservation. Bye-bye. Is that what we learn of God? Or do we learn that God works with us while we're, while we're stumbling and struggling? He doesn't cast us off. What about Abraham's life witness about God? Do we learn something as Abraham? Did Abraham grow and transform over time? He trusted God. Yeah, he trusted him. How about Lot and his daughters? Do we learn something about God through Lot and his daughters? You know the story, don't you, everyone? Yeah. They were the righteous ones. <laughs> what must have the wicked been like? <laughs> Yeah, but but notice again. What do we do? We learn something about God. Was he gracious? Was he patient? Was he kind? What about Jacob slash Israel? Again, what are we learning about God? I'm, I'm just pulling the witnesses out that God has given us. How about Moses? Moses the murderer. How did God treat Moses? Huh? Graciously. Yeah, he met him at the bush and started talking to him, spending time with him. And then God called Moses to be his man. Hey, I've got a mission for you, Moses. Why don't you go talk to Pharaoh? Moses says, I'm there. I'm your man, right? No. Moses says, no way. You, got, hey, you, mu- you must have dialed the wrong number. It's not me. I'm not the guy. I can't talk. I, I, I mumble and stumble and I'm not a good speaker. I mean, you can't send me. And how did God respond? God saw Moses' potential and he, he knew he would do it, be successful. He removed some of his excuses but providing a means for him with Aaron, his brother. He met him in his weakness. He moved some, removed the excuses. Okay, fine. If that's, if that's the deal, we'll, we'll let uh, Aaron be part of this process. Which I don't know necessarily was a good thing in the end. Aaron built the golden calf, if you remember. Aaron uh, was, was really not where Moses was. But God said, okay, fine. We'll, we'll bring along. We'll let you have Aaron at your side. Yes. I think all these stories show how... God must not be quite as offended at sin as it's made out to be because he is meeting them where they're at. He's right there beside them, and he's not like, oh, I can't look upon you. I'm going to rephrase that. God's not as offended at the sinner. Okay, that's fine. I think think he is offended at sin at the same way a doctor is offended at disease, at lesions, at infection, at at defects in in physiology. We're offended at that. We want to get rid of it. But we're never offended at the patient who's struggling with it. You see the difference? So I agree with you. I don't think, I think he looks at us and says, hey, hey, that's just part of the symptoms. We're going to cure that. That's going to go away. Yes. I kind of struggle with the concept of God being disappointed in us or upset with us. Or it's easy to to think about it and look at it when you know it's like, well, my God knows my heart and I love Him and I'm trying, but I'm still making mistakes. But what about the person that their heart is so hardened that they don't want anything to do with Him? Is He upset and disappointed in them, or does He? I mean, is there ever a time that He's upset and disappointed with any of us? Um, yes, of course, disappointed. Yes. Any one of us who will not let him heal will disappoint him. Is a doctor ever disappointed in a patient? Is a physical therapist ever disappointed in a patient? Daily. Yeah, when they're non-compliant. When they're non-compliant. And we're upset for the same reason a parent is upset as a child who at age 14 starts to smoke. Do you hate the child? Do you want to kill the child? No, you're upset because the child is destroying themselves and it upsets you, but, but you love the child still. So yes, he's upset at the destruction and devastation that, ca- that is caused to his creation, but he's not upset at the person other than their hardness and unwillingness to let him heal them. 
But yes. that's at them or just at the decision? Because if we look at in the scenario of both HIV infected children, both. we didn't have a choice both. to be born this way. It, yes, but if, 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 if you're an adult with HIV and we have a cure that will cure you now, today, free, free, you can have, take it, it'll cure you, and you refuse it, it would be very upsetting to the person who may be your husband, maybe your mom or dad that, 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 that went to who knows what lengths to get this cure for you, and you refuse it, it would definitely upset them. Not because they hate you, but because you're going to die if you don't take the cure. And they love you. And they love you, and that's why. So it's definitely upsetting to lose somebody you love, of course. Yes. And this connects back to the idea of imposed law versus natural law. Because yes. a God who decided to make up laws that people must obey would be disappointed and would be angry at the person if they didn't obey. But if it's just part of who he is and his natural way of for life, then it's just this sadness, sadness right, um, that they're, they're out of harmony with that. Exactly. And it is upsetting, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Wendell. Also, we have to be careful because there are some parents who are angry at their children and there are some physicians who get angry with their patients and whatnot because they have the wrong concept of what they're doing. Right. Okay, exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Well said. What about Moses? Back to Moses. Moses, when God says, I'm going to wipe out Israel. Do we learn something about God? Does Moses teach us something about God? Moses, again, argued with God uh, Moses argues again. And notice, Moses at age 40 murders. Moses at age 80 at Sinai is willing to give his life now to protect others. Something changed in Moses, didn't it? This is why this God, God did this. God, again, foreknew. He knew what Moses was going to do. Why did he call a witness? He needed a witness to show. Because the angels are watching, the universe is watching, and he says, look guys, my methods really do work. If, if people walk with me, if they spend time with me, if they open their heart with me, if they let my spirit come in, I can transform and heal them. Their hearts change. The law of love gets written back into the heart. The heart of stone is removed. The heart of flesh is put in. They become tender and compassionate. They love others more than themselves. And look at Moses. He murdered 40 years ago. Now look where he's at today. He's willing to give his life. Moses called to the witness stand to give that testimony. And guess what? Revelation chapter 12 describes those at the end. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. We're going to be called to the same place to witness. Does our heart change? Do we love other people? Are we willing to lay our lives down? This was the first church, the martyrs. Same thing. They did not practice this other uh, system of using power over uh, inquisitions, crusades and stuff to abuse people, to fight the state. They gave their lives. Yes. I guess um, the characteristics God saw in Moses um, at the very beginning were he was offensive for his people. I don't see the, the act of killing that Egyptian that much different from arguing with God to save his people. Because he didn't, he didn't kill this guy because he was worried about him. He killed this guy because he was, he was mis- misusing or abusing his people there. And, and he was very defensive. Yes, it was the wrong way to react, but I, I think those characteristics is what are, are, the, are some of the values God saw in Moses. What was Moses' position in Egypt at that time? Like heir to the throne, in a way. Hmm. Do you think there were any other recourse Moses could have taken to dealt with that particular overseer and that slave? Well, he was definitely impulsive and, you know, acted without thinking. But And after he killed the overseer, how did he handle it? Hey, this was a justifiable homicide because this guy was wrong and he needed to be put down. And I just, as the prince of the state, executed a criminal. Or he ran and hid to protect himself. I'm just thinking there was a lot of self in that. But I, I, I think you make a good point that he was interested in protecting his people, too. Yeah. And I think that's good. Very defensive for his people. Yeah. Um, he didn't have a right understanding about God's character. And Margaret says he didn't have a right understanding of God's character at that point. Let's, what about, let's move on. I'll skip a few of my notes. Um, Samson. What do we learn about Samson? About God through Samson. God gives gifts. Doesn't control. Doesn't control how they're used. Yeah patiently waits for us to be willing. He waited for Samson. And in the end, Samson had a change of heart, didn't he? We got David. Just, I'm, I'm, we're not even going to spend time on each one. David, Solomon, Manasseh. 
for those who don't know Manasseh, Manasseh brought prostitutes into the temple, uh, sacrificed his own son to Moloch, was taken captive by the Assyrians, repented, and was restored to his throne. What do we learn about God? Through the life of Manasseh. And then, okay, the one I want to spend time on. Your life and my life. What do we learn about God from our lives? If we've messed up, done awful things, can we still be witnesses for God? If we surrender to Him and allow Him to work in our lives, can we still be witnesses for God? And what do we witness about God? What is our witness about God? Do we witness about Him simply by what we tell others or, and how we describe Him or how we treat others? How we live. But what if we, in our human weakness, have moments in which we don't act graciously? I, I know maybe I'm the only one that's had those moments. And what happens when we have those moments? What then? How will God treat us? Does he throw us off? Forgiving. Gracious and forgiving. Mm-hmm. And how should we respond after we have made those moments of weaknesses and mistakes? Can we be able to still be used from God and by God and for God and still witness to God? You know, the example I give sometimes in this process would be a person with bilateral pneumonia, no, pneumonia in both lungs, who is dying and gets on antibiotics. And they're now working with the doctor, doing their uh, antibiotics, doing their breathing treatments and all these other things. When that healing process starts, do they cough up less crud in the beginning of that process or more? More, as the infection starts breaking loose, a whole lot more ugly crud starts coming up. Does that mean they're getting worse? As we're walking with God and letting him work in, his, in our life, do you think that we instantly have the removal of all the ugly crud that's in our character? Or do we find that maybe we just have a whole bunch of it coming out? And why is it coming out? So that we can go to him and fall down and say, boy, wow, I didn't even see that one. Ooh, that's nasty. Hey, can you change me? Can you heal me? I don't want to live like that anymore. Yeah, in the back. Yes, Tim. A viewer uh, from Florida had asked, what can a hardening heart do? Um, what can a hardening heart? Yeah, a heart that is being, be, is being hardened. Um, what can they do if, if they're suffering from selfishness and being a people pleaser? Uh, now, I, I guess that, that question is a little confusing because the hardening heart, the heart that is hard doesn't seek. Do you, uh, the question almost sounds like, they're asking for somebody they see being hardened. It almost sounds that way to me. The person who's actually asking, hey, you know what, I feel like my heart's hard and, and I don't like it and I, I want my heart to change and what can I do? That tells me the Holy Spirit's softening the heart because of the very question. Okay? And so what do we do is we, of course, we spend time with God. We, we open our heart to Him. We spend time to get to know Him. We, we examine the motives of the heart through the light of God's Word and presence and Spirit. Um, we make changes. We make purposeful choices to change the practices that, we, that are harmful, that we understand are harmful. These are things we do. But what do we do for somebody we're watching harden their heart? How do we, what do we do for them? And I want you guys to answer. You're watching somebody in your life, and they're, they're, they're hardening their heart. What do you do for them? Okay, pray for them. What about, well, what else? Love them. Love them. And what does love look like? It does what's in their best interest. And does what's in their best interest, and it, and it depends on where you are in the relationship to them. If they're nine, and you're their parent, that's, you might do something a whole lot different than if they're 29 and you're their parent, right? They might, they might look completely different. Doing what's in their best interest, does that mean giving them what they want? No. It might mean a spanking. Might mean it. For the nine-year-old. For the nine-year-old. Not the 29-year-old, even though you might want to spank the 29-year-old more. Yeah. Um, but... Yes. If there's a follow-up, let me know. But that's what I kind of thought was going on there. Okay. It's like your illustration of the crud that comes up. You know, you think you might be getting worse. And in olden days, they might have stopped the treatment because it looked like it was getting worse. I think sometimes we look at people and think their hearts are being more hardened when really they're, they're on their journey and God is with them every step. 
And that may just be where they have to go before it's the darkest, just before dawn. Now think of all those, thank you, think of all those cases we just went through, including ours. And you'll recognize that God takes the worst cases, the ones that seem most hopeless, the ones that seem most um, defective to heal, to restore, to cleanse, to recreate, the weak things of the world to confound the wise. Isn't that what he does? Yes. Yes. And so we get, this is back to what we said earlier, we get to be powerful witnesses for him as we trust him, follow his prescription, and let him work in our lives. We get to be powerful witnesses for him. All right, key thought. We're just getting to the key thought now. (laughs) Somebody read the key thought for us. I know, what can we do? Uh, Sorry, online uh, audience, but I don't know what's going on in the room next to us, but they're making a lot of noise over there today. Those who have the joy of assurance of salvation will want to lead others to experience the same. And and I thought about this, those who have the joy of the assurance of salvation, I thought, does the idea of assurance, when you think about this, do you have assurance of salvation? Does that idea bring you peace or anxiety? Do you think it's a helpful question to go to people and ask them, are you saved? Do you have assurance of salvation? Is that a helpful question? Or do you hear that question in the same way you would hear this question? In this question, do you have assurance of friendship with with God? Do you hear those the same? Do you have assurance of salvation? Do you have assurance of friendship with God? Do they feel the same to you? No, which, which, which is more comforting? Friendship. Which is more anxiety-provoking? Salvation. I'm going to tell you why in a second. Go ahead. I've always had a, a kind of a struggle with that whole idea of assurance of salvation because my assurance is that God is not going to leave any stone unturned, but I know that within me is the power to walk away. <laughs> you know, so I never want to just say... I mean, I can say that today I've got my heart open to God, you know, but I don't want to just say, I'm sure that I'm always going to make that choice, you know? What happens if we have, and the two questions, assurance of salvation, assurance of friendship with God, friendship with Jesus. If you have a real friendship with Jesus, what's going to happen to you? What's going to happen? And if you're changed, what's going to happen eternally? He's coming back to get all his friends, right? You see? Now, but it's less anxiety-provoking. Why is that the case? And here's why. When you have the question of assurance of salvation, where's your focus? When you have the question of assurance of friendship with God, where's your focus? On God. On God and the relationship. So a cancer patient is looking at their cancer and asking if they have assurance they're going to get well while they're looking at all the lesions. That's really stressful. That's really anxiety-provoking. But... How about if their focus instead on a doctor who they love and trust that has a cure and will work, and the doctor says, hey, I'm going to get you well. Don't stress. Don't worry. Trust me. And you focus on that relationship instead, this has become less stressful. Take the focus off self. Yeah, this is what God is inviting us to. Remember what Jesus said life eternal is? To know God, to get into that friendship, to have that intimacy, that that knowledge of God in your life. That's what eternal life is. Jesus didn't say life eternal is getting your sins pardoned. He didn't even say life eternal is getting your life cured or your heart transformed. didn't even say that. Those are byproducts of intimacy and knowledge and friendship with God. And that's our focus. Can the idea of assurance of salvation actually make it harder for some people to be saved? In other words, could a person accept the idea of, say, a legal payment to their accounts in heaven and then claim assurance of salvation that all their sins are paid yet still never become friends of God while they walk around with a sense of assurance? That's possible. Yeah, seems to me. All right, Sunday's lesson. First paragraph says our personal relationship with Jesus will have a direct bearing upon our success in witnessing for him. It is so easy to learn some witnessing and evangelism formulas and then rally forth in our own assumed wisdom and strength. While God can still be still bless our efforts, we must ever ever remind ourselves that it is his work and we accomplish it through his power. Do we want to merely impart knowledge, albeit important knowledge, 
or do we want to encourage a vital spiritual relationship? How can we pass on to others what we don't have in and of ourselves? And so first question, in our witnessing, can we share knowledge, facts, and truths? Can we? We can. Can we share errors, distortions, and misunderstandings? Yes. Yes. Can we make it easier or harder for people to know God, depending on what we're sharing? I want to point that out, because many times we go out witnessing, and if we really don't know God for ourselves, if we don't really have an intimacy with Him, we may spend a lot of time making it harder for people to know God. But we could go home feeling good about our witness for the day. We did our duty, we witnessed. We passed out tracts, knocked on doors. Twice the son of hell was when they started. Yeah, exactly what Jesus said to the the, uh, Pharisees in his day. Second paragraph says, Of course, there are always examples of people, however weak in faith themselves, however close to tottering the edge of apostasy and backsliding, who nevertheless are used by God to lead others to Jesus. In a large city, a number of years ago, a young woman, having joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church, worked tirelessly to reach her brother. After years, the brother was baptized. One month later, the sister left the faith and, as of now, still renounces it. Although cases like this happen, the fact is that the stronger our own connections with Jesus, the more powerful a witness will be. Our witness will be. Ooh, that just struck me. With lots of questions in my head. Does one half, does what we read here mean that she has left the church? If one leaves a denomination, does that mean one is not part of God's family? Hmm. Does it sound judgmental to suggest if a person leaves a denominational group, they have left the faith and are lost or have left God? Does it sound judgmental to say that? Yeah. Could God actually, could God actually lead people out of a particular denominational church? Could God lead them out? Uh, regardless of what church, what denomination, isn't it generally the case that the people in the church who are left behind when someone leaves, regard those as leaving as lost. Isn't that generally the case, regardless of what church? Why? It's because those um, those leaving um, need to view those... Uh, it's because those who are staying need to view those leaving as lost because what would it mean if they actually thought those who were leaving were going to greater light? What would it mean about their position? Yes, that they're staying in, in darkness. They're not advancing in the truth. So they have to then, this is a process called devaluation. They have to devalue the person leaving in order they, so they can feel good about their own position still. This is commonly seen in uh, relationships in which, say, a woman is in a marriage and she's being beaten by her husband and she finally leaves the husband. The husband will invariably accuse her of being an unfaithful wife. Why does he, he devalues her? So it wasn't me. I didn't do anything wrong. She was an unfaithful wife. That's why she left. It had nothing to do with the beatings I gave her regularly. You see? Of course, it is true that people can leave the church because they are turning their back on God and his true kingdom. That's always true. But is it always the reason? No, it's not always the reason. What is the reason that we should belong to one particular denomination over another one? Would it be because you can fulfill God's purpose for your life more effectively within that group? What God has called you to do with your life. Would that be the reason to be there? Wouldn't it be great if some denominational church, instead of trying to make others members of that denomination, would focus its evangelistic energy on helping each person attain God's plan for their life? Think that through for a minute. Our goal is to reach people to a relationship with God and help them fulfill what God has called them to fulfill. That's our goal. Wouldn't that be cool? Helping each person find where God wants them to be and supporting them in achieving that mission. Remember the movie Miracle on 34th Street? Whoever saw it? Remember Chris Kringle who played Santa for Macy's? He started sending people to all the other stores to get what they wanted. Remember? He was interested in helping them achieve what they wanted, not helping Macy's achieve what Macy's wanted. And what happened? Tremendous goodwill. People started just loving Macy's, right? What would happen if a denominational church were focused on making people loyal, uh, were not focused on making people loyal to the denomination, but instead focused on helping people find God's will 
for their lives and fulfilling that purpose. Is there a difference between being loyal to Christ and being loyal to a denomination? Do you think in the end, if a church really did this, really sincerely did this, really helped people and loved people in whatever mission God called them for and helped support them, that it would alienate people from that organization or draw people to it? Think it through. This is God's method. Do you see somehow Satan tricks us? He tricks us into substituting loyalty to Christ with loyalty to an organization. Yes? Tim, one of our online viewers has asked, what methods of graciousness do we apply to those who just don't get that healing method? Um, Methods of graciousness. Well, Paul says we present the truth in love and we leave people free. We leave them free. Meaning that we don't coerce, we don't pressure, we don't become biased or bigoted, we don't look down our nose, we don't say, and think about evangelism. We go and we're going to share the truth. This truth has changed our lives and somebody doesn't get it. Well, then we put up a billboard that say they're going to get the mark of the beast because they don't understand which day to worship on. Is that gracious? Do we tell them, well, if you don't accept this truth, you're going to burn in hell. Do you ever see evangelism work this way? Yes, that's not gracious. Gracious is, hey, this is how I understand things. This is the truth that changed my life. This is the evidence that I see. I leave it with you to weigh it out for yourself and come to your own conclusion. And I'm going to love you just as much. Now, if you come to the wrong conclusion, I'm not going to be mad at you. I don't have to be mad at you. I'll be, I'll be sad for you. Why are you going to be sad for me? Well, let's use an example. A few years back in America, people there was a group of people who started sending a message that was not commonly believed, even by doctors, that cigarette smoking is bad for you. wasn't that long ago in America, more doctors smoked than not smoked. Because, you know, you want to be the Marlboro Man. And, and a group of people started sending a message that it's harmful and destructive. Now, when you present that message to somebody because you care, you want to help them, and they say, I don't believe you, my doctor smokes. Well, I'm not going to be mad at you if you don't believe. I'll care for you just as much if you don't believe. If you keep smoking, I'm not going to punish you, but guess what? There's going to be a price to pay. You're going you're to damage yourself. And it won't be me doing it. It won't be my attitude. It's not about my attitude towards you. So grace seems to me that we love them and we even are compassionate to them, but when we present the truth of, a, of God's law and the way it really exists in his universe, we never have to threaten people. The condition itself is going to be threatening them in time. They'll figure it out. It might take them 20 years when emphysema comes, but they'll figure it out. I had a great aunt who died of emphysema. Great aunt who died of emphysema. And she had a miserable last six, eight years of her life on oxygen the whole time. She smoked for years. Eventually, she stopped smoking. Eventually, she stopped. Yes. That's also a point where we go and, pre- and talk to God, you know, in, in true importune or whatever word it is for, for prayer on behalf of that individual that we not only are ministering spirits, but there's others who are absolutely others that could minister to them in the way that they can hear. Did, did you all hear that? We go to God to ask not only for, our, for effectiveness in our witness, but to ask him to bring other witnesses to bear that maybe can communicate or approach them from an angle that we can't approach them that might get through a defense that we can't get through. Sure. I think that's great. And we are promised one of our favorite statements in this class is about the gates of hell. Yes. You know. The gates of hell will not prevail. Right. Yeah. What happens if we send a message in our witness that if you don't belong to a certain organization, you're going to be lost? Does that, have you ever seen evangelism work that way? If you don't join this organization, you're lost. If you don't worship on this day, you'll get the mark of the beast. You ever seen that? I've seen billboards like that. Have you seen those billboards? Do you think it wins people? Or does it drive them away? It's not winsome. I don't see Christ doing that. Monday's lesson, last paragraph in Monday's lesson, the early movement to follow Jesus seems to have gained momentum through social networking in Capernaum and Bethsaida. Uh, notice that Philip does not argue when Nathan with Nathaniel, uh, when Nathaniel has doubts that Messiah, he just says basically, come and see. And I thought about this. Wouldn't it be easy to witness 
if you could actually go, if Jesus was here and you could actually go out and say, hey, he's going to be over at the, uh, you know, over at the, uh, uh, the courthouse at 3 o'clock this afternoon, come and see for yourself. I mean, if we knew Jesus was going to be here physically this afternoon, if we knew that, how hard would it you, for you to go out to your neighbors and tell them to come see? Would you be enthusiastic about that? And what, what kind of a crowd do you think we could get if Jesus was actually going to be here this afternoon? Well, I don't know if you know, Tim Tebow announced that he was going to give an Easter, uh, an Easter um, uh, address at a, at a small church in remote Texas. And they had 15,000 people show up at this church on Easter Sunday. I think Jesus would get more. And it, it, When you invite people, invite, come and see. What do you invite people to come and see? What do you invite them to come and see? Wow. Wow, maybe that's why we aren't inviting people. Uh, that's a good question. What are we inviting people to come to see? Ooh. What do we invite people? Do you have something to invite people to? Yes. Um, I, I think that's a really good point. We just finished putting on a uh, Wednesday night out at the church. We invited various folks to grooming the next generation for success. That was something that was of benefit to that family. Um, also, we did a session on war on debt. People are interested in getting out of debt. So we're trying to, you know, if we can meet their needs, figure out what it is and can we meet their needs and get out in the community to, to do that. And do, when you read the New Testament, do you ever find the apostles encouraging the various churches to do just what you're saying? <clears throat> Minister to people, help people. Yeah, it's exactly what they what they were to be doing. Yeah, you don't find so much saying have a. You don't find the apostles saying go out and have a revelation camp, revelation seminar. Tell people, minister to them, show them in deeds and action God's love. Tuesday's lesson, last sentence in Tuesday's lesson says, however, the Bible reveals to us. Um, last sentence of the first paragraph states, uh, however, the Bible reveals to us that God is not necessarily looking for those who are the most qualified as much as those who are willing to be used, whatever their gifts or talents. You ever thought about that? Are you willing? If you're willing, God enables. Look what he did to those people who are willing to, to build the temple. He gave them abilities. Look what he did to the, I mean, the gifts of the Spirit are given to enable if you're willing. You don't have to come able. You have to come willing. God will gift you, enable you, open the avenues for whatever his purposes are for you. Um, any, anything God calls you to do, he will give you the ability to fulfill it. Anybody doubt that? Anybody believe that? Three people believe it. I'm glad. Okay. <laughs> All righty. Um, middle of the lesson states, God does not focus upon past performance, but upon personal potential. Each believer has tremendous potential to contribute to the Lord's work. What do you think about that? If we were to reveal God, remember, we're witnesses. We're called to witness about God. If we were to witness about God, what attitude should we have towards other people's past mistakes? Do you believe God doesn't look at the past mistakes but looks at the current heart? Are they, are they, are they working with him? Have they, have they had a change of heart? Have they been renewed? Have they been reborn? Have they been re recreated? Uh, so what that David murdered? That's not who he is today. He's been changed. So what that Moses murdered? That's not who he is today. He's, he's my friend. Do you think if we are witnessing to God that we keep records of past mistakes? What's it say in Corinthians about love keeps no record of wrongs? Yeah. If we're to love, do we do that? Do we keep the records of wrongs? Yeah, but some, sometimes people with past mistakes are better witnesses because it shows the change that God has brought in their lives. Yeah, so that their witness, they could get up and talk about their journey and about how God's taken them from that, but do we then hold it against them? Do we say, oh, you have no, you have no useful... What, what, what chance that, that uh, Moses, having murdered, would actually be able to be pastor of the local church? What do you think today? Moses... Uh, David, adultery and murder, what's the chance he's going to be pastor, elder, deacon in the church? Organist. <laughs> Not going to happen. 
I mean, you go down the list. Jacob. He only had two wives, and they, they were both willing. And he was tricked into one of them. It wasn't even his fault on the first one. I mean, he was a victim. What's the chance a polygamist is going to be a member of the church, uh, a leader in the church? I mean, you see my, my point here. God's standard and what we do are not the same. We seem to look, we, we seem to, and, and, if you, and if you think it's not just us, it's our society. Why do you think we get such, what's the right word I want to use? Well, let's just, let's, let's leave it neutral. Why do you think we get the candidates we get for president in this country? They have the most money. <laughs> <laughs> she says they have the most money. That's not always true. They might have the most backers, but they themselves don't have the most money. The people with the most money, the people with the most money would never put themselves out there in that position. Why? What happens to a presidential candidate in this country? If you have, if you have any, any major you know, mistakes of the past, what's the chance you're, that you're going to make it through? No way. No. Do you remember when George W. was going through? Somewhere along the way, I think, I, if, if I'm not, my memory is not completely wrong here, somewhere along the way, like in his adolescence, like 1920, was there a DUI or something? Or drinking or some, some drinking charge that came up against him when he was really, really young? Do you remember how they threw that out? In his face? I mean, this was, this was decades ago when he was a kid. And they're throwing that out there. Why? I mean, th- we do this as a society. And we justify it as, as being right. Just as a caveat here, um, there are things, for instance, if a person were a child molester or an abuser, you can forgive, but it does not mean you will trust or put them back in leadership or in charge of the cradle roll department. Yeah, and, and the reason for that, of course, is because you want to protect the abuser. And the abuser. The abuser. You see, you wouldn't want to put an alcoholic as a bartender. Because the, the one who's convicted and one have changed his heart and wants to live for, for the Lord, you wouldn't put him in charge of alcohol sales at your store. Because he's weak there. But we don't look at it the way I'm saying right now. We don't. We look at it as we can't trust that guy and we need to protect everybody from that guy. And what kind of message do you think that guy or that girl, whoever he is, feels loved and valued in an organization if it's approached that way? Don't we need to say, hey, we love you too much to ever put you in a position like that. We, we value you here. We want you to be involved in, boom, and give them something to do. But we won't even give them something to do. It's not just that we won't let them be tempted by being around kids. We won't let them do anything. You can come sit in the back, keep quiet, don't ask questions. Don't socialize. I mean, that's what we do if people know that, isn't it? Yeah. So I was on a committee and we were choosing people and they, I suggested a person's name and somebody asked me, why would you, why would you want him on there? And I asked, why would you not? And, and it kind of goes with that same premise. Yeah, exactly. We hold people down. Exactly. We don't allow for the Holy Spirit to transform them. And the question is not, did they make mistakes in the past? That's not the question. The question is, what's the condition of their heart today? Have they been changed? Or are they trustworthy now? Not that they make mistakes in the past. All right, we got a couple, just a couple minutes left. Wednesday's lesson, first paragraph, Wednesday's lesson, um, do actions really speak louder than words? Yes, immensely, and so forth. It goes on to talk about that. Um, how does it look to act like you love God? It talks about those who love God will act in certain ways. How does it look to love like, to, how does it look to act like you love God? Well, my question was, doesn't it depend on which God you love? I mean, couldn't a person, for their love of God, blow up abortion clinics? Because the God they love? Or, you know, fly planes into buildings for the God they love? I mean, doesn't it depend on... on I mean, they say, for, you, your life will show, and, and, and um, to profess the love of God and then act as if you don't is hypocritical. But I would suggest people who do some of these things are acting on the love they had for, for the God that they serve, and the God they serve is not... Jesus is somebody else. It's a distorted view of God. Why do people want to represent God differently than Jesus did? Or do people? Do people want to represent him differently than Jesus? Why? And they do. Why? Why are people not happy? And I'm going to tell you in our own organization, if you try to get people just to represent God as Jesus, there is a huge amount of resistance to that. Why? Why? Could it have anything to do 
Oh, and then in the lesson, it talks about, it gives a scenario about this woman um, whose husband is not a believer, and she nags and nags and nags at him, and, and so forth. And um, I guess the, the question I had about that is, uh, could a nagging person, um, uh, could they act this way towards the non-believer because of the type of God they believe in? Could that be an influence as to why they nag? Boy, I had so much to go on to. The notes are going to be online, so I encourage you to go to uh, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays notes, and, and there'll be some more interesting comments and questions there, and we've got to go ahead and wrap it up. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for, for Jesus Christ who came to show us what you are really like, the true ultimate witness of your character. But we thank you uh, in addition to sending Jesus to save us for the privilege of being a witness for you for allowing you to come in to heal us, to transform us, and to be able to stand up and say, hey, hey, God is awesome. He's amazing. Look what he's done in my life. Uh, look how he's changed me. You know what? I used to be this, but now, now I love people. Continue to work in our lives, Lord, to change us, to give us a heart of love for others, to give us wisdom and discernment, and to help remove the distortions that we were raised with that have clouded us from truly seeing you and make us effective witnesses that this world can be lighted and we can see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.